and about the process of becoming whole, what that looks like. Other words that people have used are things like sanctification or other kinds of words like that to talk about the process, becoming an emotionally whole person, you know, uh, moving towards maturity in Christ. And uh, if you've missed um, every week up until now, an easy way to catch up is to catch our podcast. You can do that through iTunes, or you can uh, go to our website and find out information about our podcast. And you can listen to the great sermons that have been happening here at Hillcrest over the last several weeks. I believe we're about part five in Holy and Whole. Um, and uh, this week, we get to talk about something um, that I think is pretty profound. Across the whole of the Bible, we run into this topic almost on every single page. And... Uh, um, there was two, uh, I believe, um, Messianic Jews, Jews who believed Jesus was the Christ, who tried to sum up what the Old Testament and the New Testament was, and they summed it up uh, in one word. They said largely it's about one thing, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but I'm not going to tell you yet. You have to guess. Um, uh, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. Um, some people were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to trap him into saying something where they could get him to say something foolish or something that would upset a bunch of other people or whatever it was. They thought, ah, we can maybe trick him. We can kind of stir up the people against him. And, uh, and he replied to them this way in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that home and, uh, and, and you can have available a Bible to you to read uh, whenever you'd like. Verse 36, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the, in the law? Um, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your uh, soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Uh, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I have a question for you. This will require a little bit of thinking. What is the opposite of this command? If this is the greatest commandment, and see, Jesus didn't end up getting tricked. You know, the Pharisees who were asking this question didn't go, aha, we've got you. This is what you said for your answer, and you're wrong. Because he was right. And they, they knew that. But what's the opposite? What's the opposite of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? What's the opposite of that? Hate. Many people would say hate. But I would say that the, the opposite of love is not hate. Or at least not a complete answer. Or the starting point. The opposite of loving something entirely is loving something else. Which leads to hate. Do you know what word the Bible uses for this? The opposite other loves? Anybody know? You can shout it out. Idolatry. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Um, now, when Jesus was talking about, uh, you know, this command, what, how he answers, it comes from, he's elaborating on something that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And uh, this is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, it says. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Um, these commandments, what is he talking about, these commandments? He's talking about the Ten Commandments, one of the most famous you know, list of rules that there ever was, you know, posted in classrooms, you know, throughout all ancient times. Um, not quite. Um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5 is where we find the Ten Commandments. And Deuteronomy 5, uh, 6 to 21 says this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments is about idolatry. And the other nine commandments are just further clarification of the first. If you, are, if you are successful at having no other gods, you are loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. Now, many people will ask, perhaps these people asked, 
what other gods? You know, we think perhaps primitive people had gods, but we don't. I don't. You know, those were simple people, and we know more. We have science or something. It goes on to say, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, on the earth beneath, or the waters below. By the way, that's everything and everywhere. Heavens, in that sense, is not just, you know, the sky, but beyond. Even heavens is realms uh, in their thinking, in Hebrew thinking. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So even these words are about idolatry. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. This is not to say a title or reference God in any way while you're upset or you stub your toe, you're injured. That's not what it's talking about. Ultimately, it's not also, we sometimes have used the word cursing to talk about those kind of things. It's not about that either. Those are all different things. The name of the Lord is also his character and his attributes. If you say in your heart, I don't trust God, but I do trust my money, you have committed idolatry because you have misused his name. Because if he says, I am trustworthy, I am the provider, and if you say, I don't trust you, it's idolatry because you're trusting in something else. You've made the object of your trust your God whatever that, your credit card or something in your wallet, that's what I trust. Even observe the uh, Sabbath day, keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. See, when you believe you can't rest, you have another God. Because this God says you can work six days and then take the, the next day off. Success or fame, perhaps worry, is maybe your God, but it's not the Lord. He is the provider, and he is always at his work, and all glory is due to his name. If he says, rest, and you say, I will work, you're working for another God. Honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal, give false testimony. All of these things, they are idols. When you steal, when you covet anything or any person, you commit idolatry, you have another God. As you read through the Old Testament, and as you, encou you encounter all kinds of idolatry, even as you study across the globe through many different cultures all throughout world history, you realize that everything has been an idol. But most people in our culture they don't really understand. They think of primitive people bowing down to statues, and we believe kind of there's no gods really behind those statues. Most people in our culture have trouble believing in one god, let alone in believing in a god for everything. But as you kind of survey throughout the, um, the scripture, the Bible, as you look across world history, you realize that there's lots of idols out there that people have had, lots of gods. The ancients had a god for health, for fertility, war, the sea, thunder, wisdom, a god for beauty, the atmosphere, a god for music, a god for, this one's interesting, beekeeping and fruit trees. You know, Thor and the beekeeper um, battling it out. <laughs> be a different Marvel movie. Um, the god of astronomy, uh, vegetation, god of opportunity, god of time, god of agriculture. Perhaps in our culture we don't have physical idols, but idols of the heart are universal. Because human beings are worshippers. That is core to our identity and purpose. As we were made by God, we are worshippers. And we will worship something. Someone and uh, the invitation is, the greatest commandment is to love God first. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 14, verse 3, speaking of Israel's elders, 
uh, it says, you know, these men have made idols in their hearts. And uh, this was, again, they were probably thinking, what idols? You know, looking around. Again, in that culture, in that time, there would have been other nations beside them that had this use of different idols and how they worshipped, and they would have set up statues and whatever. And here God says, though, idols can be in your heart. The human heart takes good things, like a successful career or love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we were able to attain them. What is more important to you than God? What absorbs your imagination? What, should you lose it, would make your life hardly worth living? Uh, how many of you can remember 2008 or so? A bit of a financial bump in the road. Um, lots of people lost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And uh, if you're paying attention to the news during that time, it was covered with things like, after losing money, somebody committed suicide by jumping out of the whatever 18th floor of their building, um, killing themselves in their, you know, $200,000 cars <laughs> because they had lost it. They had valued so much money. And when that happened, when there was this economic downturn, they, it exposed their idol. An idol is anything that you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, I, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. So what, what all can it be? Again, it can be anything, but let me list a few so you can perhaps begin to pinpoint where maybe you have struggled with or struggled with having idols. It can be family, children, a career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Sometimes a deep-seated idol can manifest, can show up in a number of different ways. Um, perhaps it is approval. And one might, maybe before becoming a Christian, um, seek it in relationship after relationship. And then after becoming a Christian, seek it by serving in the Sunday school, at Joe's Place, Riverside Mission, the food drive. An idol is anything that you look at and say, that's, that's really it for me. The Bible uses three different ideas when talking about idols. We love our idols, we trust our idols, and we obey our idols. We should love, trust, and obey God. He's the only one who can truly love us. Our obedience to him is always good for us. He's the only one that can deliver on his promises. We've said it even in this series, he's the only God who doesn't He's the only master who doesn't enslave. There's so many ways that idolatry can show up. It's hard to know where to start in terms of explaining to you, giving you examples of how people have had idols, how it was destructive, leading them further and further into destruction, to that enslavement, into wickedness, into dark behavior, and how God has intervened, how God is better than all of the things that they were in pursuit of. It's difficult to know where exactly to begin, but I'm going to give you a few examples from the scripture, a few characters perhaps that will be notable to many of you, and you can do uh, homework and a little bit of further reading to investigate if you identify that maybe one of those fits you. So we're going we're gonna to cruise if we have time through a number of these examples. Genesis 22, Abraham a very famous person in world history uh, and famous, of course, in the Old Testament um, uh, for a number of reasons. God chose him and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
And uh, in order to have a nation, you have to first have a child. That through you, there would be many more of you know, your descendants, this nation that would arrive. And, so, and it seemed impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have this um, child, but eventually, miraculously, a child is born. There are many who desperately want to have kids. There are some who never get what they hope for. There are some that do. Too often, though, when children become idols, it brings destruction on both parent and child. When a parent makes their children their God, um, believing that they will fulfill all of their hopes and dreams, um, they will most certainly be disappointed. I once heard somebody say, um, I come from a long line of fathers who have disappointed their sons and sons who have disappointed their fathers. Every time you try to find something that you can only find in God, you will end up with disappointment. Not only that, but the children who are made divine are also crushed. They know they can't live up to that divine expectation. They will eventually run from their parents' neediness. The all-consuming, life-draining nature of their relationship will alienate parent from child. In Genesis 22, there came a test for Abraham. Uh, this is uh, Genesis 22, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Many people have a hard time with this story. For maybe perhaps people who've grown up around the church, it just kind of came with the package, and so they just accept this as, well, normal, that's just one of the Bible stories. Yeah, father told by God to go and kill his kid. Um, many people on first hearing that think, that sounds crazy. But it's not. In fact, Moses, or, sorry, um, Abraham had been walking with God for many years now. And God doesn't say to him, you know, go and kill your kid. He doesn't say that. Or, or you know, if, if he had, Abraham would have just been crushed because he can't do that. He can't follow through on that. Uh, he can't just kill his kid or kill his wife. If he heard God say that, he would have said, this is some kind of evil trick. The devil is working. I, I'm not going to do it. Or he would have just been crushed. He couldn't have handled it. He wouldn't have done it. But there's something that we actually miss. Um... If you back up earlier in the story to a number of people called Adam and Eve, um, Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15, after Adam and Eve had sinned, um, the Lord, responding to the serpent who was involved in tricking them, said, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and or between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, many call this the first promise of the Messiah. A child who would be born, who would crush the head of Satan, the serpent, but who would also suffer. They all understood that their sin would fall on their children. Abraham would have to pay his debt or his son would have to. Abraham also knows that his son and God's promise to bless him and all of the nations of the earth are intertwined. So he's obedient to God. And actually, as you look at it, all throughout the story, he shows signs that he has faith that God will deliver. But we won't go into all of those. If you're curious, you can do a little bit of homework on that. You can discover those for yourself. Um, in the end, though, Abraham demonstrates his unfailing ultimate love for God. And God intervenes. He says in Genesis twenty-two twelve, "Do not lay a hand on the boy." He said, "Do not do anything to him." Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, it's only because God Himself did not withhold His only son that this was possible. Jesus. The Son of God was offered as a sacrifice on the cross for, sin, for the sin of the world, not Isaac. 
It is for this reason that parents can love their children well. When they love God entirely, there is abundant love available for their children, whether their children have love for them or not. Children can be an idol. Perhaps you know somebody who was in that situation where they desperately wanted to have children. Um, there was a, somebody who working in Hollywood. I'm not sure exactly what field in Hollywood that they were in, but through their work were able to connect to many, uh, you might say, rising stars. People who their big dream, their big hope was to be a uh, famous uh, celebrity, make it into film or whatever it was. And uh, they talked about, it was an interview that uh, someone had done with this person, and they said it was remarkable to see the transition from seeing these people, with, again, poor, desperate, without much in terms of money or income or whatever, but they had their hopes and dreams. And then they were realized. They got, you know, their big break. They suddenly had lots of money and opportunity and all that they wanted. But there was an interesting transformation that happened. They got what they wanted, and they realized it was still empty. That's the thing about idols. They always promise that they are better than, can deliver on more than God can, and always under-deliver. They never quite give you that same thing. And even, it always comes back with diminishing returns of its effect on you to, be, to have you know, participation in your idol. We're going to continue on. Abraham, uh, let's move to Jacob, his grandson. In Genesis 29, kind of 15 through 35, um, we read the story about um, Jacob, Abraham's grandson. He was overlooked by his father Isaac and eventually was um, exiled because of an attempt to get his father's blessing through trickery. In his exile, he becomes infatuated with a woman named Rachel. He very rudely asks her father if he can have her. For an absurd price, eventually, he agrees to something like seven times more than any bride would be worth. And it's clear even from the language that this isn't, I think we would be a good partners in life together kind of an ask. He wants to have her essentially physically and only physically. He's only thinking about that. It is a lust. And uh, in a conversation that Jacob has with um, this person, Laban, who has these two daughters, Laban says, yeah, it'd be great if my daughter Rachel were to marry somebody like you. And Jacob is so disillusioned and, and not paying attention, he hears not those words, but words that say, yes, you can marry my daughter Rachel. I will let you do that. Anyways, for seven years, he works for this opportunity. But after seven years, Jacob finally demands Rachel, and Laban instead follows their tradition where the eldest daughter is married off first. And Jacob is so eager that he marries Leah without even paying attention or knowing or realizing it. And after his wedding night, wakes up and realizes that it's Leah, not Rachel. Still desperate for the object of his affection, he agrees to work for another seven years and marries Rachel as well. He's desperate. We're going to come back to Jacob. But let's talk about Leah for a moment. Rachel is described as beautiful in contrast to her sister Leah. We don't actually know exactly why this is, but it's very clear that they say, Rachel, there was two sisters and Rachel was the pretty one. If you're described that way um, and you are left out of the pretty category like Leah, it must mean that she, some people say it has to do with her eyes. Maybe she couldn't, she had weak vision, <laughs> but it's more like maybe she was cross-eyed or maybe she just didn't look so good. <laughs> Anyways, Leah was the eldest daughter, and so she's married off. Um, Laban marries her off. And this would have been difficult for him because his pretty daughter was younger, and it, tradition said that Leah was supposed to be married off first. And so all the suitors that were kind of coming around were saying, well, I'm going to hold out and wait around maybe until Rachel's available. And so this would have been hard on Laban. Ultimately, Leah, ultimately Leah is not loved by her father or wanted by her father, but then Along comes Jacob, disillusioned, not paying attention, driven by his lust, and uh, Laban sees an opportunity. 
But what happens is, though she now has someone who's supposed to love her, her husband, he doesn't. She doesn't have his love. She has him physically because they begin to have children, but she doesn't have his love. And there's a very interesting account, Genesis 29, 32 to 35. Leah becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. It seems despite her circumstances... They didn't really change in her lifetime. She was able to find fulfillment in God. Throughout the scripture, God speaks of himself as husband to his people. God became Leah's husband. Jesus, the Messiah, is a descendant of Judah, of Leah. God chose her, not Rachel, for this blessing. When she realized she had him, she realized she needed nothing else. Now back to Jacob. Jacob bled for his life because he had tricked his father into giving him a blessing through his father, though his father had intended it for his brother Esau. Many years later, um, God speaks to Jacob and sends him back to his homeland. So again, they've developed this relationship. You see this maturing that's happening in Jacob, and he's heading back home into the place, into the uh, part of the world where he left and fled and where his brother still resided. Many years later, you know, God sends him back, and uh, he hears that his brother is coming to meet him, and he's coming with 400 men. Fearfully, Jacob divides his family and servants and possessions into two groups, believing that if Esau attacks, at least part of my family, part of my things might survive the attack. After sending everyone across the Jordan River, we are told that J Jacob, now alone, wrestles with a man until daybreak. And there's a very interesting story. It is revealed that there's a man that wrestles with Jacob and that it is somehow God himself. And as the dawn approaches, the man, or God, intends to leave. And he says, let me go. But Jacob replied, this is Genesis 32, 26. I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your no name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. During this encounter, the man touches Jacob's hip, and it came out of its socket. This wasn't just a wrestling move. This was a miraculous touch. It's the, the lightest possible touch is kind of the word in, in uh, Hebrew. Jacob would have known that this was a miraculous touch. He would have realized that he was wrestling with God in the shadows. And it was also believed that if any man saw God's face, he would die. And even as the dawn approaches, Jacob holds on to him and says, I will not let you go even if it means my death. He's after God himself. He's no longer seeking his father's blessing, his earthly father's blessing. He's no longer trying to sneak or cheat away his brother. He's not running after lust, but he's after God himself. And there the Lord blesses him. So, Family, children, desire can be idols. Love can be an idol. But there's a host of other idols. Uh, here's a question for you. Which topic does Jesus address more than anything else in all of his teaching? What does he talk most about? Money. Some people might think it's sex, but it's not. 
Perhaps for every one sermon we have about sex, we should have about four or five of them for money. How would you like that? <laughs> Both of you, none of you want to have any of those sermons. Um, many people in our culture are perhaps like Jacob, driven by desire. Sexuality is a huge issue, but money is a greater issue to deal with. Um, of all the sins that people come to pastors for, can you pray for me? I'm really struggling with, I have an issue with. Greed is not one that people bring in. Some sins are obvious, and greed is one that goes unseen. Nobody feels rich. How many of you are sitting here and thinking, I have so much money, I can't even begin to think about how to spend it. And did you know that most of us in this room are in the upper ranges of wealth in the world? Jesus warned in Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Though many of us don't feel like we are rich, um, we likely are, but greed is not only for the rich. Um, greed um, is not just love of money, but excessive anxiety about it. Both the rich and the poor can struggle with greed. According to the Bible, again, idolaters do three things with their idols. They love, trust, and obey them. Lovers of money are those who fantasize about how to make more, what to buy with it, and look jealously on those who have more than they do. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Idolatry also makes us servants of money. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Remember that God is the only master who doesn't enslave. If you love or trust money, you will also obey what it demands of you. Jesus warned in Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Can you think of any other sin that comes with a watch out? Be on your guard? Um, when you, again, it's one you can't see. When you are stealing something, it is rare that you would think, wow, how, did, how did this happen? I didn't find, find myself here. When you're committing murder, adultery, you know it. But when you're greedy, you might not. What biblical character comes to mind when you think about greed? Zacchaeus. A familiar story even to children because he was short and he climbed a tree. Children are short and climb trees. They would get along with Zacchaeus. So in Luke 19, which you can read for homework, uh, let me try to sum up Zacchaeus briefly. Um, he's just one example um, that Jesus has been teaching all the way through kind of Luke in that section. Money is, again, one of the most common idols or counterfeit gods there are. His love for money had made him the chief tax collector in the area. In other people's minds, he had abandoned them and abandoned their country for money. What's the saying? Everybody has a price. He has very little honor left to spend, and yet he climbs a tree to see Jesus. He has to climb not simply because he's short, but because no one was going to be courteous enough to let him in to the crowd to see Jesus. Now, climbing would have been um, embarrassing, dishonorable to that culture, but he does it anyway. This shows he's searching, he's desperate to see Jesus. And Jesus announces to him, um, come into your house. And his heart is so moved that this transformation occurs. Zacchaeus realizes that if he wants to follow Jesus, money is going to be an issue to deal with. He makes two promises. First, he promises to give away half of his income. Second, he promises to give back four times the amount that he's stolen from anybody. At seeing this, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. 
Jesus doesn't say, um, like he did to the rich young ruler, um, to give away everything to the poor. See, unlike the rich young ruler from Luke chapter 18, just before this, um, the transformation had already happened in Zacchaeus' heart. The rich young ruler wasn't willing to part with his idol. He was trying to figure out how to do a little bit more, be a little bit more, add a little bit of Jesus to his life. And Zacchaeus was realizing his poverty of spirit and the rich love that was being poured out on him in the grace of Jesus. Zacchaeus knew that his generosity couldn't come close to God's grace and mercy and what Jesus ultimately did on the cross. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul encourages the New Testament churches to be generous. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Zacchaeus follows Jesus, and for the sake of those he's hurt and cheated, he releases his riches, and with it he also releases his desperation. Money could never satisfy Zacchaeus, but Jesus has satisfied him and freed him from this idol. So family, love, lust, greed, all kinds of greed. All of those things can be idols. Uh, another idol we can look at. The idol of success. Um, an interesting character, Naaman, in 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 5 says, Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. That would be modern-day Syria for us, Aram. Uh, he was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So he was a successful dead man, dead man walking. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served as Naaman's, uh, served, served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman pretty much had it all, everything except for his health. He hears about the prophet in Israel. He talks to the king of Aram. And the king writes a letter for Naaman to take to the king of Israel, along with gold and other gifts, essentially trying to buy healing for Naaman. The king of Israel responds by tearing his robes. And he says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Clearly, this God doesn't work the same way as the gods from Aram. A healing can't be bought. Elisha hears about this anyways, and he sends for Naaman. Naaman comes to see Elisha, the prophet, but Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He just sends his servant. The servant tells Naaman, will be healed if he goes to the Jordan River and washes in it um, five times, or seven times, sorry. Um, Naaman gets upset, and he storms off. Why? Naaman's servants give us a clue. They can't see something, or they can see something that he can't. They go to Naaman and say, My father, if the prophet has told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? See, Naaman thought he had to prove himself. He thought his status with the king of Aram, or his military success, or wealth, entitled him to something. Um, Naaman expected he must have to do some great thing. But it was simple. He was available to anyone walking by the Jordan River. Naaman has been at the servants, or been at the mercy of servants the whole time. His king and the king of Israel brought him no closer to his healing. He spoke only to Elisha's servant. It was his servant who appealed to him to wash in the Jordan. And it was the servant girl who first gave him the news about the prophet in Israel. That servant girl, again, she was captive 
captured, brought from Israel. Her family would have been slaves to or killed. And who ultimately was responsible? Naaman. She could have harbored hatred for him, delighting in his slow and painful death by leprosy. But instead she speaks up. She says, if only. Naaman's healing was found in the Jordan River because of a servant girl. But our healing is because of the great suffering servant, Jesus, who came as a servant to us all and suffered, died, so that we, though we are dead, people walking might have life. Even success can be an idol. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, again, um, a notable uh, story for children out of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's idol was pride. It was himself, his power, what he was able to do. And there was an intervention that came. God brought a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Again, this is in the first couple of chapters uh, in Daniel chapter 2, 3, 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Again, for homework, you can read through this. He has a, a dream, if you remember the story. He has a dream, and he's troubled by it. In, in his, he's troubled by it because there's a giant golden statue, or a statue made of many different kinds of materials, gold and silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And what happens is there's a rock that comes from heaven and destroys the statue, and it falls. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, very likely, when he first saw the statue, thought, that's great, that's probably me. And then he sees the rock coming, and it's smashed down, and he's troubled. And uh, Daniel comes to interpret the dream. And uh, it's revealed that, um, you know, God interprets his dream and uh, shows Nebuchadnezzar again his power. And um, he seems to respond positively, but he still has this pride issue. It actually doesn't go away. It's a warning, but it doesn't leave. Later, another dream comes. This one is about a tree, and it's entirely cut down. And it's just the stump and roots that are left. And uh, Daniel again interprets the dream. And this time, um, Nebuchadnezzar is driven mad. For many years, he lives like livestock, among the livestock. And it said, uh, Daniel speaks to him and he says, Only when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God alone rules, that heaven rules, then his affliction will leave. God again shows his power And this is how Nebuchadnezzar finally responds. He finally changes his heart. At the end of that time, his time living as a cow, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you have done? My sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. All those who walk in pride... He also was able to humble. Another homework assignment, uh, the book of Jonah. Learning it, this story as a kid, I didn't realize it was because Jonah had an idol, why he ran, why he left. What was, it, what was his idol? His country, his nation. Because God called him to go to a different country and say, I... I want to show my compassion on these people. I want to see these people return to me as well. And Jonah couldn't handle it. He couldn't understand it. He thought, I'm going to run. He jumped off a boat and said, it's better if I'm dead. Finally goes and preaches to them. And he, they, they turn their hearts towards God. And he goes away mad. <laughs> At the end of the book, it seems surprising. There he is upset sitting on a hill, waiting to die, having a conversation with the Lord. And the book just kind of abruptly stops. And uh, I always thought, well, whatever happened to Jonah? 
did he ever deal with his idol of his nation being um, so focused on God's blessing is only for me, for us, for we, not them. And yet we have the book of Jonah. Who but Jonah would have sat down and written himself so poorly into the story and said, this is how wrong I was. God is greater. He is my Lord. And the whole purpose of my nation, you know, is to see that all nations of the world are blessed. Anyway, so read Jonah. Uh, deep idols. A few more comments and then we'll quit. Uh, this is a quote from a, a book I read uh, on this topic called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And he writes, surface idols are things such as money, our spouse or children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We are often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their uh, world and life. Such people don't usually spend a lot of money, but they live very modestly. They keep it safe, saved, invested, so that they can feel secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful or attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol, and yet because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. You might see this in a couple arguing about finances. The idol of one person's, maybe vanity, is money is spent on fashion or luxury, and the other's idol is the need for security to control and save it. Both spending and saving can be driven by idols. Someone, again, driven by their need for approval might seek relationship after relationship. Uh, it might later come in their career, their boss's approval, or maybe, again, they join a religious community and uh, they're constantly seeking approval. Maybe it moves even into the political realm where they're seeking this approval. I know people personally who ultimately changed their sexual orientation because of their deep need for approval and acceptance. Many times it is not enough to address the surface idol. We need to go deeper. We need to do some honest and heartfelt evaluation. But this is hard work. And most people just give up. That's why we're so passionate about church renewal at Hillcrest. Church renewal is not about adding ideas or information. It's not just about correct understanding of biblical principles. It is about putting things into practice. Uh, in ASL, American Sign Language, the sign for faith is to think and to hold on to. Think and hold on to. It is both of those things. We need to move from understanding and thinking into the practical. Set free, hearing God, seminar, uh, hearing God seminar, prayer summit, these are all chances to do some of the things that we believe. They're certainly not the only way that faith kind of works its way out in action, but they are meaningful to us because they are about putting the central elements of the Christian faith into practice. So how do we stop worshiping these other idols, believing the promise that they can be better than God, even after time after time after time that they come back to us and disappoint? How do we stop bowing down to them? In the same way that our idols replace God somehow, we must replace our idols with him. We must become totally satisfied in him. All throughout these stories, there was an idol, something that somebody loved more than God. And yet there was an intervention every time in what God did and how he related to them. He fulfilled his promise. Um, he showed love by 
providing the son that would die as a sacrifice. Um, he became the true husband to the one seeking love. Um, as he intervenes in these people's lives, we can see a pattern of how what God does, how he relates to us, what he has done for us in the cross, that we actually can trust him, can be satisfied in him. For the parent, for the one seeking love, for the one seeking success or achievement, for the proud, for the rich and the poor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. Now something that we've been doing here at uh, Hillcrest uh, throughout this series is taking a moment of reflection. There's book marks in front of you that say holy and whole on them. And they also have on one side something that says the Hillcrest Church Health Check. You can take hold of it if you'd like, if there's still some for you. I know many people have been taking them and using them. I'd like to take a moment now and uh, do some evaluation. So can we put it up? Here we go. So now it is time, we can say this together, honest and heartfelt evaluation of what I need to add, what I need to lose, thoughts I need to take captive, truth I need to meditate on, help I need to seek, and the healing I need to receive. Let me pray for us as we um, transition uh, here this morning. I'll, I'll pray for us. The worship team will come back and they'll lead us in one final song. Uh, and as they're coming, we'll just take a moment to reflect. Father in heaven, I pray you would help us to see our idols so that they can be exposed, revealed. Help us to see how they will never satisfy. Undo the plans of the enemy to make us think that they will the appeal of something different, something more. Help us to deal with the idols in our hearts by looking to you and what you have done for us, how you have loved us, how you fulfill all of your promises to us. Father, help us to love you more, to become emotionally whole so that we can love you truly. Father, give us practical steps. I so appreciate this simple check we can do of adding and losing, seeking help, seeking friendship, advice, finding healing. Father, I pray for each person here that they would be able to find their pathway forward, that they'd be able to follow their next step of obedience to you. Um, Father, we do want to say that we love you, and even in the songs we sang uh, this morning, our hope is found in you. Uh, I pray that that would be true of our hearts and our mind and all of our strength. In your name we pray, amen.